EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. This episode of the EMS Garage is brought to you by Audible.com. Over 85,000 titles to choose from in every genre. Thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi, and more. Get a free audiobook download for your MP3 or iPod. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash EMS Garage. The EMS Garage. Okay, I got the DZ on the phone there. I want to know if uh, you can handle that call as well. Just confirming you are checking the patient. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage. It's your weekly podcast about pretty much nothing, but this week we are going to talk about something. Uh, this week we're going to talk about city hospitals being billed $60,000 uh, when paramedics have offload delays. But first, I'm going to introduce my esteemed panel of guests. And as always, I'm coming to you from the high in the Rocky Mountains where it's still snowing and it's almost June. Um, so I'm not real happy about it, but whatever. I think we had one nice day the past week where we actually saw the sun and knew that the sky was still blue. Other than that, I don't know. Um, so up first, Mr. Rob Terrio from Ontario. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I know. It's been a long time. I know. And and you're over there at the Educast and doing your own thing over there, too? We are. We're, we're having a great show over there. Greg Fries, Bill Toon, and myself. And uh, thanks to you. And uh, loving it. I don't. I don't do anything with that show. You educators are really <laughs> but, smart people. That's why it's but, great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Chris, Chris, you are the visionary. Oh, what? No, no, no. Now, who won? Who won the Innovator of the Year award for his podcast? Not me. Greg Fries did because he's awesome. <laughs> well, Greg is a machine. Greg uh, does incredible stuff. He is. He's awesome. Well, uh, and speaking of Greg Freeze, hello, sir. How are you? Well, guys, that is always flattering. Thank you. I'm doing really well and having a lot of fun, like Rob said, with the EMS Educast. And uh, glad to be on the garage. It's uh, just an occasional thing for me these days, so I'm always happy when I can, can make it on for an episode. That's why I like doing the Friday morning shows, because you, you can come on. So Yeah, I try. That's awesome. Thanks. Don't tell my boss we recorded this on Friday morning. It was way before you started working. So. Right. But you're educating people. Thanks. Right on. Also joining us from right down the road, pretty much, uh, Ann Robinson. Hello. Hello. How are you guys? We're good. Even though you're a nurse, we're going to let you in anyway. Yeah. Oh, I'll bring in the hospital perspective. <laughs> right. That's that's uh, what we need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so thanks for coming on today. You, you can pack you can pack your bags and your boxes while you listen if you wish. Okay, I will. There you go. Right. Yeah, you are taking up precious packing time. Oh, whatever. You'll be. Fine. <laughs> uh, also joining me, Mr. Scott Keir. Hello, sir. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. You're not hungover today. What's going on? I, I absolutely am not. I, I oh. had a good day yesterday. Actually, I spent my day uh, teaching a paramedic refresher. Mm. And nice. uh, you will be happy to know that. Not only was EMS Garage mentioned in Chris Montera, but yes. Greg Freeze, EMS yes. Educast. And I did an entire module on uh, EMS and the internet and the opportunities that are out there and uh, try to open some people's eyes up to some stuff that they hadn't been exposed to before. Right on, man. Good job. That's cool. Thanks. That's very cool. And very soon you're going to be uh, – are you you're going to Vegas? Absolutely I'm going yeah, to Vegas. Baby. I would miss Vegas. All right. Uh, yeah. Rob, Rob and Greg, are you guys going to Vegas? No? Yes? Not I, oh. unfortunately. Yes, I am going to Vegas. Sweet. You want to do an educ- if we if we have the opportunity to record podcasts there? Would you want to do an educast? Oh yeah, sweet. Or yeah. two or three. Okay, cool. one you, a day might- is good. Except for I'm presenting on a couple. I have two presentations on one day. I can't remember which of the days, but 
that might be a tough day to do uh, two episodes. Our our executive producer Anne will work with you. With yeah, well, why don't you just give me your availability and I'll book you right up. Awesome, and we're gonna <laughs> be fun. And we're gonna host those. Uh, we're gonna hope to stream those again this time, and we'll we'll put up a UStream channel and show everybody the show floor and let people enjoy it from home too. If you can't make it to Vegas with us, so we know we've heard rumors that it's almost done, but we can't tell you any of the details yet. So. As soon as we know more, we'll let you know. Rob, were you trying to say something? No, I was uh, yawning and muting my mic simultaneously. Gotcha. Very cool. <laughs> and joining us finally, Mr. Tim Newman. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? Uh, I only get up this early for you. It's 10 o'clock, dude, where you live. It's not that bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, w- I work later than most Oh, people. okay. Gotcha, gotcha. understand. Well, thank you for getting up for me, because that rocks. And are you going to Vegas, or is that too far? No, unfortunately. I was thinking of uh, scamming an entry in the EMS newbie contest, but, uh, well, Kelly would probably recognize my style of writing. <laughs> well, just make it like an, a newbie, and you'd be fine. You could, you could use some pseudonym. You know, I think what would give you away, Tim, is the word count limit. <laughs> you, yeah, I might you, do it. You would be like the sixty-year-old who's trying to squeak into American Idol. <laughs> awesome, dude. <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, let's let's get down to business here. So, the Winnipeg hospitals racked up a sixty thousand dollar bill last month after four hundred ambulances were forced to wait upwards of ninety minutes to unload patients in the emergency room. Uh, the Winnipeg Fire Department or Fire Paramedic Service—they have fire paramedic services in Canada. Only in Winnipeg. Ah, okay. That so probably counts for fewer than five percent of services in Canada. Okay. So all of the services are. Um, purely paramedic services. All right. Well, this comes to us via the uh, Winnipeg Free Press. You'll find the link on our webpage. And this is an in, this is interesting. I, you know, I, I is this the wave of the future where we're going to start charging hospitals for them basically holding us in the ER and and reducing our productivity? Well, I would hope not. That that would be, you, you know, I think when you look at this uh, on the surface, it it sounds pretty clever, and it certainly got the hospital's attention, and it has reduced the offloads um, I, by I think down to thirty minutes or so on on average, which is which is pretty good. But uh, I, in my mind, it's it's a little bit short sighted, and I, I kind of understand why they did it. British Columbia did it first, and then the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service did it second. And um, I think they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place and felt they had to do something to free up their ambulances to respond to uh, 911 calls. Because I think in the article they said at, at some points as much as a third of the service was tied up in offloads delays. And that's really uh, pretty critical. So I, I, I kind of understand, you know, why they went there. But the trouble is, uh, it, you know, in my mind, it's, it's short-sighted and there are too many sort of uh, – negative sides to that kind of approach you know i think i think on the one hand um uh negative deterrents first of all are are never as effective as positive uh incentives secondly um i think the er's are being punished for something that's beyond their control i think this is a a, a larger more complex hospital issue that has to be dealt with on a on a hospital-wide uh, level and also on a provincial level and uh, and the ERs are taking the brunt of it because you know what happens in most ER departments and it's probably like this in the United States as well is they tend to be the uh, you know although they're the first point of contact for most people entering the hospital and and it should be a place where you move through fairly quickly and efficiently it it tends to be the one place that's always the bottleneck for people entering the healthcare system and I think and this is based on uh, working as a base hospital program manager for several years and having the, the good fortune or misfortune of being the on-call manager for the for this particular hospital for you know three to four weeks out of the year, uh, emergency departments are have always been incredibly good at collecting statistics on the flow of patients that come into the ER and move out of the ER and other areas. The hospitals have not been uh, as efficient at that because. They haven't had to. They haven't had to deal with the 
uh, the the excess number of patients coming through, and because they do, you know, tend to get squeezed in the ER, and and so they've sort of borne the brunt of this, and there, you know, many ERs are in a position where they've got numbers of admitted patients in the ER who really only need assessments, Q4 hours and medications, you know, a couple of times a day, and they're tying up beds in the ER and they can't get them out, you know, and maybe where they should be going is into the hallways on the floors. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bottleneck should be sort of opened up and, and to move those patients out. So I think, you know, the, the ERs as a consequence are being punished uh, unfairly for it. And I think the, the other risk is well one you know we're trying to work together with the hospitals we're you know we're trying to work as a single healthcare system and 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 in my mind that goes it's sort of counter to that effort uh and two i think paramedic services run the risk of uh the hospitals deciding you know enough is enough we're going to start to bill you now for you know, things that we feel are inappropriate, like maybe inappropriate transports or complications associated with treatments uh, done by paramedics in the field, etc. To me, it, it just uh, has great potential to be uh, become a vicious circle. Well, and do has the ambulance service there taken any of the onus on themselves to say, you know, maybe we're transporting, we're not referring to alternate destinations and, and as a bigger, as viewing themselves as a system, because I like your, I like your comments there about viewing it as a system that we really need to, I mean, is, are they part of the problem too, where they're transporting way too many people or, or, and I guess the other question I had for you, is there any evidence to show that it's just one particular hospital or two particular hospitals versus all of them? Yeah, the article wasn't too clear on whether it was one or two hospitals, and it's probably a you know combination of two or three hospitals in, in the city, just as it is in most urban urban centers. Um, but I I think it's you know there's some issues that EMS can address in a number of urban EMS systems, as as you know, Chris, because you're I consider you an expert in this area. Are developing community paramedic programs, you know, where we can start to um, look at and treat the non-urgent patients and leave them at home and reduce the number of transports to hospital. But but here's where you know uh, I, I'm sure they probably got to, well they did get get together with the provincial health agency and with the hospitals and had some discussions before they started building this process. So clearly, you know, th- this isn't something that they did unilaterally without some thought. And clearly they felt um, like they were between a rock and a hard place. So, y- y- you know, I have some empathy for uh, the services both in British Columbia and Manitoba for, you know, making this move, which was probably not uh, an easy decision. Uh, it is a complex issue, you know, and and I think there are multiple areas that need to be addressed, including um, development of community paramedic programs so we can reduce the number of transports to hospital. And also, you know, look at all of the inefficiencies within the hospital and address those. And and those range from, you know, the way physicians work, the way housekeeping works, the way the nursing floors work, all of those things, keeping better track of statistics within the, within the different wards, for example, so that let's say we moved admitted patients from the eMERGE into the hallways on the medical floors. Uh, those floors, if they're not already doing so, would continue, would, would uh, track statistics on number of patients who, who are sort of over and above their, their, their normal bed count, uh, what implications that has on nursing staff, on other healthcare staff, uh, and so on. But, but, you know, these are oftentimes low acuity patients who, who really need to be there, not in the ER. And this is a, a model that they've used in the UK, where they've moved patients out of their ER departments onto the floors. It's not a great solution, but you know, what's the purpose of the ER? It's to look after the high acuity patients, right? Um, how do we deal with the issue of low acuity patients? Well, we create urgent care centers. We create, you know, uh, areas within just off to the emergency department to less to deal with the less urgent patients. We've, you know, looked for alternative uh, uh, care agencies that these people can go to. We look at what role EMS can play and maybe not transport into an emergency department or transport into some other area. Uh, you know, I think there really continues to be 
a disconnect between EMS and the rest of the healthcare system. And, um, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that it's not being addressed. I think it is. I think, you know, paramedic services across Canada um, are, you know, meeting with hospitals and trying to find solutions. But one of the, one of the uh, disconnects that, that I see in, in, in our system where we have, you know, supposed uni- universal healthcare system is that there's no, there's no financial connection between uh, EMS and hospitals. So, for example, hospitals in um, in Ontario, for example, are funded 50% by municipalities and 50% by the province. Uh, so, province looks after healthcare in general. In, in my mind, they should be looking after all of the expenses for um, ambulance services, not just 50%. And you know what um, the healthcare system as a whole should be looking at is. What is it that EMS does that uh, benefits the patient in the long run? You know, what, what is it that we do that reduces like the stay in hospital, reduces the likelihood that patients will be admitted to the intensive care unit, things like CPAP? Uh, what is it that's, you know, things like STEMI bypass and stroke bypass and, and uh, you know, certain interventions that we do in the pre-hospital setting that, that reduce the overall healthcare costs because we don't do that now. We, we do it sort of in, on a research level. You know, we, we, we look to see what, what we do that's, that makes a difference. But, but uh, from a hospital's perspective, you know, they would look at this and say, okay, that's nice, but uh, really what does, difference does it make to us because we're not connected to one another. So it, it's, a, it's a conflict. Let me, let me just give you an example of the kinds of uh, inefficiencies that I saw in the hospital where I worked. And, and I can tell you um, that the, the nursing staff at the hospital where I worked uh, uh, worked very hard in the, uh, in the last few years to establish uh, systems to, to address the inefficiencies. And they were very good at things like patient bed allocation, those kinds of things. But um, so to give you an idea... Uh, we have a system where there are staff who work in the hospital and physicians um, are, they, you know, they call them staff physicians, but they're nearly, not really hospital employees. They're um, physicians in our system bill the province, which is kind of an odd situation. So on the one hand, we have um, medical universality. On the other hand, we have these physicians who bill and bill to a certain cap. and um, And so there's no... There's no real incentive for physicians in the hospitals to go beyond uh, what they need to do to build to the maximum. So a physician often, you, you know, outside of the teaching hospitals, physicians um, have usually have a family practice. They come in the hospital. They do a couple of days in the hospital. They do their rounds. Let's say they have 15 patients to see. They'll see 12 of those 15 patients. They don't get a chance to see the other three. Let's say two of those other three were ready to be discharged. But now, you know, they're occupying a bed for another day, two days, three days, because the physician hasn't had the opportunity to get there and uh, see them and uh, have a discussion with them and discharge them. So, you know, it's a big burden to the healthcare system. And not only that, but they're tying up beds that could otherwise be freed for patients who were sitting in bed in the ER could be transferred over there. Um, housekeeping uh, is, you know, not to bash housekeeping, but there are inefficiencies in there as well. And what I found when I was the on-call manager for the hospital was that uh, sometimes um, the ER charge nurse would call me at home and she'd say, Rob, I got a patient who needs to go to the ICU, but the, uh, the, the person from housekeeping is telling me that they're not assigned to clean ICU beds. So I'd have to call the person in housekeeping and say, yes, I know you're not assigned to clean, you know, beds in the, in the ICU. And, and, and they, they have certain protocols, believe it or not. They, there are certain people who are trained to clean ICU beds and certain people who, are, who focus on, you know, ward beds. And so I would have to say to them, look, uh, you're going to have to go in there and clean the ICU room. We've got to move a patient up there. It just has to get done. So, you know, you would think that uh, hospitals would run efficiently to the point where an on-call manager wouldn't have to do that. It would just happen. You know, a charge nurse could just say, call housekeeping and say, you got to go here. Um, so there are inefficiencies. Like I remember my, my mother-in-law um, had a stroke and went into the hospital when I was the, the manager there. And um, 
she went home for a weekend and I went into her room on Monday to see how she was doing. She hadn't arrived back to the hospital. And uh, there were like six trays of food at the end of her bed. So uh, no one had told food services that she was away for the weekend. And the people who worked there didn't seem to care. They just thought, well, maybe she's out of her room. We'll just deliver these trays of food. So they just stacked up at the end of her bed. Um, you know, so, and, I, and I'm not suggesting all hospitals are like this, but there are many inefficiencies within the hospital that need to be addressed that could help reduce that bottleneck in the ER to move those, those uh, patients out of there. Um, so uh, the offload delay, in my mind, is, is not a paramedic problem, yes, there's some things that we can do uh, to be more efficient on our, our side of things, but this is really uh, a hospital issue that needs to be addressed uh, both internally and through, um, you know, uh, at the provincial level in terms of funding and so on. Well, and I think, again, you're, you're pointing out system issues, and I, that, that really, mm-hmm. it just shows the inefficiencies. I know Greg wants to jump in because I know he has to run, so do you have, uh, do you have anything to say to this, Greg? Well, I was just, the thing that struck me about the article was just that they're only billing for times that they have to wait more than 90 minutes to offload a patient, which is just sort of incredible to me that that happens so frequently. And it's, you know, at some point they averaged like 10 minute waits and then it was 20 minute waits and then all of a sudden like 45 minutes and I mean, it's sort of stunning that that would be a routine to be spending an hour and a half standing in the ER with a patient. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. That was my main thought about it. Yeah. Now, this is an issue in in, uh, in urban centers in the U.S. as well, I assume. Yeah, it is. I mean, it. I, I think it varies from location to location there was i know like in denver there was a problem with it at one point but the hospitals got together and said you know what we're going to create zones and we're going to say that if so that uh, hospitals going on divert hospitals would go on divert because they couldn't accept more er patients because of the backup and they have so many people or so many hospitals in that zone and they said if all the hospitals in one certain zone go on divert then none of them are on divert. So they basically, um, they're basically self-regulating themselves to say, we want to make sure that, um, we always can accept patients because we, they feel that obviously the emergency room for in the United States is a high cost center. At the same time, it's also a, a higher profit center. Um, if the people can pay those type of issues, but yeah, so I, I think that, you know, I know in cities back East that there are, uh, it, there have been issues with it. I don't think it's as big of an issue or it's at least not as publicized as much now as it used to be. Mm-hmm. So we tried that, um, diversion strategy in Southern Ontario and, uh, found that it just wasn't working. So now, so now we've adopted something slightly different. We call it consideration. So if, if a hospital's, uh, a little overwhelmed, they, they go on consideration. The, you know, the other thing I was going to say about this, this billing issue, part of the problem with the billing issue is that, um, okay, let, let me t- take a step back. Um, at some of the hospitals, uh, and, and this boils down to some of the individual triage nurses, what will happen is they'll have – we use um, – in many of the provinces in Canada, we use the Canadian Triage Acuity Scale, which is a five-point scale, one being the highest priority. And these are generally, you know, for example, Glasgow Coma Score of three or apneic patient who is still alive or, or vital signs absent patient would be a would be a, CTAS level one that would have to be seen immediately. CTAS level two would be someone who needs to be seen within 50 minutes. So that might be someone short of breath speaking five words per sentence. Uh, So we have this scale. And if there are, for example, 10 CTAS level three patients waiting in the waiting room and uh, the paramedics bring in a CTAS three patient, from a triage perspective, you know, you have to to appreciate that, that uh, you know, if I was a triage nurse, I would be thinking, why should the paramedics CTAS-3 patient be seen before these 10 other CTAS-3 patients in the waiting room? They shouldn't really. That, that kind of um, goes against the whole principle of triage. On the other hand, you know, if you don't see, if, if they don't take the paramedic 
CTAS-3 patient before the others in the waiting room, then we're depriving a whole community of 911 services. So there's, you know, strong arguments on both sides. Now, if, if uh, hospitals, emergency departments are now being billed for offload delays because um, they're taking these 10 patients to the waiting room before they take the paramedics patient, now that they're going to start taking the paramedic patient, which, you know, is probably a, a bit of an ethical dilemma for some of the nurses. The other problem with that, though, is that, you know, the people in the, that general area may start to see, hmm, if you take an ambulance, you'll get treated, you'll get seen faster, why not call the ambulance? So there is a potential risk there uh, to send the message out to the community that you'll be seen faster if you call for an ambulance. And we don't want that, obviously. We don't want people calling for an ambulance because they think they're going to be seen faster because that's not the way it should happen. They should be calling for the ambulance because there's a certain level of urgency to their medical or traumatic condition that requires an ambulance, right? So, so you know, this whole approach has just such great potential to, to backfire and to become a, a downward spiral. So, Anne, what about the hospital perspective? What do you think from the hospital side? What what could they be doing differently? Uh, because I think there's a slippery slope here where maybe I, does Winnipeg do interfacility stuff so they transport one patient from one hospital to another or something like that? I'm or not sure if they do. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if they do or not. A lot of uh, urban centers have um, paramedic services have moved away from that and and ah. do not do nine one one calls. And again, this is a, a this is a bit of a dis- dysfunctional part of our universal healthcare system, in my view. You know what happens is that. Um, Ambulance services do get reimbursed by the province for 911 calls from the community to the hospital, but they don't get reimbursed for transfers between one hospital and another, which makes makes absolutely no sense at all. So what's happened is that, uh, at least in Ontario, what's happened is that a whole bunch of private transfer services have popped up, and they do those transfers uh, at a cost, which is, I'm not sure what the cost is, but I think it's pretty substantially higher than what ambulance services used to, to bill for in the past. And um, uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's an inefficient system. I'm not sure if it's the same in Winnipeg, if they use transfer services. Uh, I think they do primarily 911 calls uh, and not interfacility transports, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Well, and Robin, I, I think you make some outstanding points. I'm, there was one point that you made about the physicians and rounding that really kind of caught my ear, um, you know, and looking also at the whole, what is the acuity of these patients? And I mean, the hospitals, they can only, they, they have a capacity, they can only take so many patients, but should the patients even be coming via ambulance into the hospitals, why aren't they being treated at primary care or at alternate destinations? And what my question is, you know, at the hospitals in America, you have um, physicians have to follow the rules of the hospitals of you need to come and see your patients X number of days, X number of times, depending on the situation. So it sounds like in Canada, that's not the case. And so, no. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think we, you know, physicians follow the same sort of rules, but there are some you know, instances where, where patients do fall through the cracks that they, you know, just may not concede. So, I'm, and I'm speaking purely from the hospital where I used to work, uh, so I can't, um, you know, generalize to all hospitals. But I think, I think they follow probably the same basic rules, but there are some instances where, you know, um, someone gets missed in the rounds. Well, see, and being a, being a floor nurse, we'd be calling that physician saying, get your butt in here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This patient needs to be discharged and we have people waiting for the beds. So, you know, it, well, it, it would be very interesting just to see how that system works differently than what our systems work. Yeah. And I, I suspect they're probably very similar, probably not 
to December. So I'll, I'll give you another example. So it, it may not be a case of the physician has to leave to get back to you know his or her family practices. It may be a simple case of they were doing rounds, but they're also working emerge and they got to get back down there, or the or the emerge is overwhelmed and so the physician's going over to help, or they've got a critically ill patient in uh, in the ICU. And we're t- I'm talking primarily not the larger teaching hospitals, but some of the smaller community hospitals. Uh, you know, they they get diverted somewhere and they and they can't do anything. But you know, here's here's the the inefficiency, and the, and this is just you know one hospital where I work. Um, one of the inefficiencies that can be addressed. So, um, if you've got patients who could have been discharged today, uh, but for whatever reason the physician can't get to them, uh, why can they not be discharged by uh, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant? You know, is it really necessary for the physician to see that patient at the end of the day to say, yeah, you're good to go, go home? I know as a healthcare professional, if I was in that situation, I was ready to be discharged. And the only thing left to do would be for the doc to, you know, have a talk with me and say, you know, Rob, spend some more time on the treadmill. Now go home. Um, I, I would discharge myself. I'd be out of there. I'm well, not waiting for anybody. Right. And that's I was just going to mention that, too. Why can't why can't we as patients just go? I'm fine. You know, either give me the stuff or not. I'm walking out the door. Yeah, because, you know, we're healthcare professionals, right? We're, like, we know, but uh, the vast majority of patients, they don't know. And so, they, you know, they think, oh, my goodness, I got to stay. It's like prison. me out. <laughs> Go ahead, um, And you can receive orders over the phone. The nurse can receive discharge orders over the phone from the physician. Right. Yeah. You, yeah. The physician doesn't need to be see the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or why so, doesn't the physician start planning ahead and say, you know, we're, we're, we're now in, you know, look at the nurse's plan of care, right, Anne? And say, um, we see that this patient's going to be better by X date. Let's, let's pre-write orders for all that or have standing orders for discharges of certain types of patients. And when they get to that point, the nurses know, let's just get these people out of there. I mean, again, system issues that could be really readily, easily solved. Yeah. yeah. And I can tell you, um, you know, it's, it's, it's be really unfair to get into a discussion about comparing, uh, you know, U.S. versus Canadian system. But I can tell you um, some of the efficiencies we have that, that I think are lacking in the U.S., for example, um, procedures that are done, tests that are done, must be evidence-based. And if they're not evidence-based, they're not done. It's as simple as that. So if a, if a patient goes into the hospital and says, I want an MRI for my knee, and the doc looks at the evidence and looks at the criteria and says, no, it's not going to happen, it doesn't happen here. But but I think in a in a monetized system, in a, in a in a privately run healthcare system, there's and, and a system where tort law uh, allows patients to sue very easily. There's there's more of a I think probably a tendency to go ahead and do those tests. So you know in some ways you know there are greater efficiencies in, in a universal healthcare system where where you you, you have I think the, uh, the 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 freedom to use evidence base and and you're not fear uh, fearing litigation uh you know you can avoid some of those tests and there's some greater efficiencies to be had there but i think the bigger problem in the hospitals in terms of efficiency is probably you know uh, a, a lack of recognition on the on the at the provincial level that uh perhaps more nurses are needed more beds are needed that the the um patient population has increased that you know the population in general in a given area has increased and the uh, paramedic services and hospital services have not grown to reflect uh, those increases in patient acuity and patient population Um, those are the bigger issues the physicians just a kind of a you know one small piece uh, amongst the the all the other hundreds of pieces Well, and also I would, again, like to look back to the acuity or the systems of why the patients are coming to the emergency room. I know on average in the United States, 80% of emergency room visits are primary care type visits. So what other systems or healthcare collaboration can occur that these patients can be seen in another location? That would be something else that I would pitch out there to look at. Yeah, and as Chris was asking earlier, what can EMS do to that? And I think you know we're we're going in that direction, community paramedicine, and you know playing our our role. I think, and and I think we need to work ever more closely with public uh, healthcare to uh, to do that. Mister, well, this is a problem in Toronto. Several years ago, about five or ten years ago, 
as I remember uh, talking with the head of the paramedic, paramedic association from there, and they were having a problem of several hours tying mm -hmm. up patients. And I think yeah. uh, Los Angeles had this problem because uh, Ted Set was movie uh, Firestorm uh, is about the problems from. Uh, ambulances being tied up at the emergency department, not being able to offload patients. Yeah, and that's actually improved uh, quite dramatically over the last few years in Toronto and other urban centres in uh, in Ontario, at least where I work. Um, one of the ways they've they've dealt with that is, you know, looked at where we can become more efficient as a hospital overall. The other thing that a number of emergency departments done is they've hired an initial, um, an additional rather, a nurse or two to look after those low acuity patients that come in by stretcher. And, and that's helped. I know um, in the region where I work, um, uh, two of the hospitals have uh, a, an additional nurse who, who is assigned purely to uh, taking patients off the paramedic stretcher and onto a hospital bed and and sort of over sort of watching over those patients who are in the hallway so that's dramatically reduced our, our offload times in, in the region where i work I, I would say it's very rare that i will sit on offload delay beyond 30 minutes very very rare usually we're offloaded in about 15 minutes and um at the 20 minute mark we contact our our supervisor and our dispatch center to let them know we're on offload delay and you can guarantee in about 10 minutes later the supervisor's in there chatting with the charge nurse saying what can we do what's going on let's you know get this the ball rolling so you know it's it's being addressed but the whole billing thing mm, i i just you know i on the one hand i feel bad that they felt compelled they had to go that way they, you know they probably felt somewhat forced and they were not getting the attention they needed on the other hand what's it going to lead to is it, have we really solved the problem here i don't think i don't think so in Toronto, weren't they moving the patient to a backboard and placing the patient on the floor after 90 minutes initially, then a month later moving it to 60 minutes, and then a month after that moving it to 30 minutes and leaving the chart with the patient? And somehow uh, the region had decided this was not going to be patient abandonment? No, no, I've, I've, I've never heard of that happening. Um, I, I know there's there had been talk or rumors about doing that kind of thing, but yeah, it, it would be abandonment. You can't, you know, that simply could not be done. This, the, I'm sure the Toronto EMS would never tolerate that, and neither would the, the hospitals. Um, so well, I know... This was the plan that Toronto EMS had come up with. That might have been, well, I, I think it might have been something discussed, but I, I don't think that ever came to fruition. I think what, what happened is they, um, you know, Toronto's a very big service, and they had, um, a, I think they did a, a trial for a while where, and I, I'm, I, I may, I've got to be careful here that I don't, you know, misinform, but I think they may have trialed a, 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 a program where they had uh, light-duty paramedics who were there looking after patients brought in by ambulance, and, and that would free up the ambulances to, to go and call. So these were medics who were not able to work ambulance because they were injured or what have you, but but would be in the hospital looking after those. But it, again, you know, that's, it's not an EMS problem. It's a hospital problem and a bigger system problem. So I think they've, they've changed that now and it's the hospital who's providing the staff to look after those patients. Uh, um, uh, I'm not entirely sure what they're doing in Toronto, no, but at least that seems to be the process in most other places in, in urban centers in Ontario. One of the things mentioned in the article is that they can transfer care to another paramedic who's there waiting with the patient. So how many patients can a paramedic uh, supervise? I don't think anyone's not? really, yeah, and I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's any, you know, black and white uh, policy on that. Uh, you know, how many can we look after in a triage situation? Could be hundreds, um, could be a dozen. Uh, I, I don't think anyone has a number on that. It could be could be purely a, a comfort level. You know, paramedic says we'll look after these three patients, ours plus year two. But beyond that, you know, that's it. Uh, I, I I don't know. But again, I think that's a, a bad solution as well. I really don't think you know one paramedic crew with a low acuity patient should be looking after the patients of two other paramedic crews so they can be free to go out. I think that's the wrong approach. I think this is a hospital a problem. That, that needs a hospital solution. And, um, uh, you know, I know people in the past have argued EMS needs to help with the solution, but I don't think 
yeah, yeah, we need to have discussions with them. We need to convey clearly that it is a serious problem in terms of 911 response. And I think we can provide suggestions, but I don't think we, other than, you know, developing community paramedic programs, I don't think we should be even attempting to provide solutions inside the hospital. I think that has to be done by the hospitals. And actually, the nursing unions uh, really flipped out about uh, the idea of, uh, uh, you know, light-duty paramedics in the hospital looking after patients. That was became a, a union battle, and I think that's uh, probably why it was uh, quickly squashed. Stinking nurses. Man, <laughs> they're, they're smart. Your, they're your friends and they're not. We would do the same thing, right? If, if there was a paramedic or EMS provider shortage and and uh, the service said, well, we're going to put it, nurses on the ambulance, we, we, <sighs> no way. we'd be flipping out. Oh. Well, so. they, couldn't, they couldn't hack it. They couldn't oh. even. <laughs> I'm Let's kidding. not start we that. Love, we love nurses. Let's not. Let's not go there. <laughs> but we could all work together and fill, could. You know, could. fill those healthcare gaps to meet the need. Kumbaya. Oh, <laughs> well, listen, listen I, I worked Expo 86 in Vancouver, and we had nurse paramedic clinics. Wow. And I had probably, well, other than the fact that it was Expo, and it's just a lot of fun there, but I had probably the most fun of my life driving around on golf carts with uh, nurses and responding to calls with nurses. It was just awesome. Yeah, I did that when we had the Grand Prix in Denver, and they would put a nurse and a paramedic and then on a golf cart with a firefighter driver. Holy cow, talk about a crazy system, but we had a blast, and it was... You know, just because you got to you got to talk to people, and they got to see you working in your different environment, and the nurses were great at, at handling the things that were very nursey, like you know the people that were just kind of sick, and you know they'd hand out Tylenol and do things like that, and give them band aids or whatever, pat them on the head, give them a lollipop, and then you know, and then the paramedics would be there to handle you know seizures and all kinds of crazy stuff. So you know, it, it worked well. So it worked. Nurses well. can't handle seizures. <laughs> the real medical uh, no. emergencies. Is that what no, you're saying? That's, well, that's kind of <laughs> Chris. Chris, you're in big trouble now. I, I, you know what? Well, you know, I'm always in trouble so it doesn't matter <laughs> chris i'm just gonna say it's it, you know it was a great interprofessional learning experience for nice. me it was it was because yeah nurses do bring a different perspective and we bring a different perspective to them and uh you know in many ways we're equals in many ways we're different and uh it's it was a great great partnership well, I guess the hardest part for me was when we were working on the seizure and the nurse is getting out her, her pen and her chart trying to write a care plan. I'm like, you know, we, oh, we really don't. Oh, 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 we do not do that. <laughs> we do the documentation later. I know. I'm teasing you. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I, in, all, in all fairness, though, nurses do. you have do, any thoughts <laughs> of perving yourself? And, well, is anybody smoking <laughs> at your home? <laughs> oh, no, no. But in all fairness, I, I really think that uh, nursing brings a different perspective and we could learn a lot from nursing as far as how to look at patients and how to look beyond the one time acute setting that we come into and start looking at the broader perspective. And I think, Rob, you said, but you said something earlier that really kind of got me. And I, I think it's important that we start realizing this, that EMS is not a part of healthcare. We're not, or at least we're not considered a part of healthcare because we, we, we don't act like it. And it's time that we, if we want to act like it, we have to start raising the bar to, to have a seat at the table, if you will, and make sure that we can, you know, put out our story and, and tell people that, you know, we are healthcare professionals. And if we're going to do that, then we start, have to start acting like it through our education and a bunch of other things too. Yeah, and part of it is we work in isolation, right? And we, you know, for many of us, the world begins and ends in the pre-hospital setting. And um, so we we really do need to work more collaboratively. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big... I'm a big fan. One that that we're healthcare providers first, public safety second. Uh, two that we develop closer ties, links to hospitals, either um, in a way where we're working, rotating through hospitals. There's better interprofessional communication and education, so so that hospital staff have a better understanding of our role. We have a better understanding of their role. We have a better understanding of the implications of our interventions in hospitals. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, 
you know, when I teach, when I teach paramedics and, uh, and I, I do continuing education for working paramedics, I'll often hear people say, well, what's the point of lubricating an endotracheal tube? Uh, the mouth is wet. Well, yeah, the mouth is wet, but the trachea isn't. And that tube's going to be in there for several days, quite possibly. And, and a dry tube in the trachea uh, up against the delicate membranes within the, the mucous membranes of the trachea, very damaging, right? This is why it's not about, you know, the, the, the half hour we spend with them. It's about the next day and the day after that. So we really have a disconnect and, uh, you know, we, we definitely need to forge stronger links and uh, greater interprofessional education. Yeah, we focus on getting the vital signs looking nice when we drop them off at the hospital and act as if anything that happens after that is the hospital's fault. <laughs> and that we provide exactly. good care by dumping fluid into a patient to, you know, who's bleeding out to get their blood pressure you know, to 90 or 100 or whatever the goal is. And they have no hemoglobin left, no clotting factors, nothing. So by the time they get to surgery, there is no chance of resuscitating them. Yeah, exactly. We give epinephrine to get a pulse back, even though the patients who receive epinephrine don't leave the hospital at any higher rate than the patients who don't. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction. We just have to work harder at it. Very what about uh, leaving a patient in triage? One of the things the article says is paramedics cannot drop off a patient until that person has been seen by a doctor. Yeah, is that's. That I true? think that's. No, I think that's a miscommunication. It's not by seem because, you know, if um, if the doc came out, let's say we, this happens uh, quite often, the physician will come out to the triage area uh, for a patient who's on the spine board, clear the spine, and uh, and we'll get the patient off the board. Uh, that doesn't mean the the patient's no longer the, the paramedic's responsibility. Um, it's it's not seen by the doctor. They really have to be transferred over to the hospital bed, right? So until then, it's a shared responsibility. So that's I think that's just a, a misquote or misunderstanding on the part of the person who wrote the article. No, I, I meant it in the opposite direction. Oh. Can you transfer the patient to a nurse? Yes, absolutely. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm used to doing. It's only the less stable patients where uh, the doctor uh, is right. involved in transfer or when, you know, they're curious. What do you yeah. have here? Yeah, uh, well, it's it, exactly. It's only, uh, no, it's the same, same in Canada. It's only the really high acuity patients where you end up usually giving a report to the physician and the nurses simultaneously. But uh, 90, 90% of the time, it's the RNs. Yes. In order to facilitate you going to your meeting in merely oh, six yeah. minutes. Yes, I wanted to, let's wrap it up. And uh, Scott was really quiet this time. Do you have anything to say before we wrap the session you know, I was taking a lot of this in, and, and just real quick, um, it, it seems a little premature to me that, or, or, you know, yeah, it is a problem that's been going on a little bit, but the fact that people are imposing fines kind of says to me that somebody thinks that they already have the processes in place, and I'm just wondering what those processes mm -hmm. are as, as far as going forward. You know what I mean? It, it, it says to me, it's like, it, it seems premature to say to somebody, well, fix it, or we're going to fine you, you know, and put the put the fines in place without having a system there, and, and I... I wonder at that point where, where the failure lies within that, you know, within the system itself. Also, um, just talking about diversions, Massachusetts is a diversion-free state, and we've actually noticed things moving a little more smoothly since we went diversion-free about a year and a half ago. I've noticed it considerably from the EMS side. But that's really about all I've, all I've had. Mm -hmm. Well, they have the billing processes in place. Yeah, they have the billing processes in place, yes. But, I mean, I, I, I think that the, the process needs to be in place to fix the problem prior to imposing some sort of fine on a facility. Oh, I exactly. Understand. I was just being silly. Oh, yeah. my bad, Tim. I'm sorry. It's yeah. still early here, too, man. It's not even you, 11 o'clock yet. You took me seriously? <laughs> What's wrong with you? That's my mistake. It won't happen again. Uh, yeah, it, thank you. Imagine, you know, Kind of in summary, we have a universal healthcare system. It makes no sense for you know to rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, imagine uh, paramedic services billing hospitals, hospitals billing paramedic services back becomes tit for tat. In my mind, 
makes no sense. Yeah, it so creates animosity too. That's the other problem. It here, does. Right? Look, it does. Look at this situation is going to create animosity within the system, and that's nothing that's going to serve anybody, especially the patients. And I don't see how speeding up transfer without a, a process in place to ease the burden on the back end is going to benefit patient care either. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very true. See, Scott didn't say much, but it was so profound. I know. That's great. <laughs> it's a beautiful Rob, synopsis. I love listening to you, and, and it, was, it was great just to have the experience to be able to, to sit here and take it all in, to be honest with you. So that's Thank, thank you. Right on. Wow. You're like a fanboy, Scott. That's awesome. Oh, I've been you're a fanboy never... for the last year that you've even let me on this show. Oh, I was going to say, you're not a fanboy of me anymore because you're like a regular. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's funny. I love it. Well, you know, the, uh, someday I'll tell the story about when we first met because you, you just, it just cracked me up a little bit. And then, and you were like, I got to be on the show. And it was great. It's like one of us made it through. I'm like, it's, it's not that hard. Just email me. I'll put you on. I made it to the other side. No, that's what it was. You know, garage was always this thing that I, that I listened to on my iPod oh. and sat there and said, wow, wouldn't it be cool to someday be on there. And then. And now geez. you are. There you go. And now you don't oh, listen God. to us anymore. Dark you, side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys. And Rob Terrio from Ontario, tell us where people can find you. Uh, sure. They can find me on my blog at uh, paramedictutor.wordpress.com. That's probably the best place to reach me. And you could also find us on uh, the uh, our Facebook site at uh, www.facebook.com slash EMS Educast. And you also have a Georgian paramedic school podcast that I subscribe to as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can link to that through my blog. Very yep. nice. Right I've got on. about four hundred podcasts on there. You, you, you are you're becoming you're becoming more the podcast king than me. This is good. Well, <laughs> I, I record all of my classes, and they're oh, all up on good. iTunes U. Yes, so it's very cool. Uh, yeah, the students absolutely love it. It's, it's nice. awesome. Well, it is good. I mean, if you miss a class or something, you can listen to it right there, or, or you want to yeah. retake, you want to get that knowledge again. It's good. Well, yeah, or more importantly, I find you know the students listen to the podcast and they they relearn. It gets reinforced, so they come into nice. class and uh, you know very quickly they start talking the language and you know we can we can move from knowledge uh, you know up to the more critical thinking areas. It's just amazing. That's perfect. I love it. Wish more. I wish more places did that. Yeah. Well, people can contact me. I'm I, I'm happy to help other teachers learn how to podcast from the classroom i, I do it all the time uh, i do it free of charge i might add because uh you know I, i'm uh my entire career i've had a lot of tremendous amount of help from other teachers and other educators and i'm always happy to help others in return great well thank you very much mr greg freeze you're independently wealthy <laughs> <laughs> i wish i was we all wish we were that's because we're not making any money at this mr greg freeze where can people find you are you still there i don't even know yes i'm still oh, there cool all right uh, certainly as rob said the ems educast but they can also find me at centerlearn uh, facebook.com slash centerlearn or uh, blog.centerlearn.com and then of course all sorts of travel. Looking forward to seeing you at EMS Expo, NAMSI. Yes. When is NAMSI this year? NAMSI is in September in Reno. Oh. Kyle Bates and I are doing a pre-conference about creating effective visual case studies. Uh, so that's a great opportunity. Kyle's really the the expert there. I'm lucky to ride his coattails to help deliver that presentation. Good chance I'll be going to Pinnacle in July. So getting out and about i really enjoy it triple a you going to triple a again this year chris uh, i don't know one one fall trip to las vegas is about all i can take yeah. um i may be going to pinnacle as well so if i do we could maybe set up a impromptu podcast there it'd be kind of fun. sure all right yeah cool. let's do it well I, i'll know more about that in the next week or two so okay, as soon as i know I'll, I'll let you know uh also um, there was something else. Oh, so Namsi, I'd like to maybe come out there and you and I will talk offline about maybe getting at least run out there for a day or two. It's really close to me, so I should go out there and, and just say hi. So that'd be yeah, kind of fun. Yeah, and Kyle has indicated that he's got portable podcasting capabilities. Yes, he does, which is very cool. He's got, he bought all the stuff and, uh, and Jamie and I have, have come up with a methodology to, basically send a package of about 40 pounds across the country for 20 bucks so we we've now mastered how to how to get all of our equipment back and forth across the country it's probably not best but so we're hoping to um 
make that happen. And I, I recently just purchased a nice camera setup, so we have some other stuff too to to come. So that'll be good. So uh, we'll we'll talk about that and see how that goes. Mister Tim Noonan, where can people find you? Uh, Rogmatic.com, Paramedicine101.com, ResearchGMS.com. And there's one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine back in 2003 had uh, an article, The Emerging Subspecialty of Hallway Medicine. It was tongue-in-cheek. You know, the doctor's saying, hmm, is that melanized smell? And the nurse says, yes. The doctor says, good thing the patient wasn't in a room. We get to spot it sooner. <laughs> okay. Nice. All right. So well, this is nothing new. No, it's not anything new. You're right. That's absolutely true. Uh, I'll send you a link to that uh, article. Right on. Very cool. Uh, Mr. Scott Keir, where can people find you? Well, unfortunately, unlike you and Greg, I will not be found at Pinnacle this year. It doesn't look like I'm going to be able to pull it off, which has me <laughs> pulling my hair out because I want to get down there so bad. It's like a dream of mine to make it to that place. Dude, it's Miami um, in July. Trust me, you're not missing much. <laughs> oh, no, no. There's, I, I love it down there. It's, it's great down there and, and, and no snow, which you're going to find. Too. Well, and then, well I, I'm kind of torn. You know, I'm going to Miami, 99 degrees, 99% humidity. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Anyway. Well, and, but yeah, but then you're going to be in Vegas at the end of August, too. Really? But in I Vegas, you no, you don't go to you don't go to Vegas to go outside. <laughs> yeah, but but Vegas is a dry heat anyway. It is, know. it is, it really kind of, you know. And I and I can actually say that because I'm from the West. This Oof. is true. Yeah. But uh, you can find me at uh, medicsbk.com and on Twitter at medicsbk. Right on. And Robinson, where can people find you? Have you started a blog yet? Are you blogging? No. Do mm-hmm. you think I have time for that? Yeah, I'd, nobody commented about the picture I posted of you yesterday, which was pretty funny. I know it was a great picture. Great, Poor thing. it was the, my great side, of course. If if somebody knows a, so I posted a picture of Anne online, and it's on my Facebook page and on my Twitter. If you know the line from the movie that I posted, send me an email. I will send you something. Maybe some Boingo Wireless or something. Send me an email, emsgarage at gmail.com. Oh, man, you already got it. How did you know? <laughs> that is one of the greatest movies ever created. Ever created. I agree. You know what? It's one of the only movies I have on my on my Apple. So, Sorry I blew up your mom, Ricky. <laughs> what was the line? Uh, it's really sad when, when people throw away a perfectly good nurse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was dumpster diving for boxes. <laughs> and she was in the dumpster. And I, I had to take the opportunity. I mean, I'm like, come on. That's perfect. Times yeah, are tough for the only one who watches junk movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, please rescue okay, me. Okay, well, a no contest. Everybody should know it's better off dead. So if you, if you haven't seen that movie, go, uh, go rent it, watch it, find it somehow. It is an 80s classic that oh my goodness i love the the guy that does howard cosell and they're you know and they sitting there trying to race each other oh what a great movie oh, loved it. uh so anyway and besides dumpsters where can people find you if you oh, want to be found that's so sweet well i will be in vegas so i'm excited for that in august um but i am on facebook and on twitter um and my handle is caring ann so very nice, and I uh, we won't ever tell your story from the last time you were in Vegas. So we'll just of let course that, we'll you just will. Let that go. So just know it's coming. And- I won't. I won't tell everybody on here. I'll just tell you over drinks in Vegas. So yeah, that'll be way better. And finally, me. I have a couple things, a couple announcements this week. Go to the Stroke Awareness Initiative page on Facebook and like them. This is from Cheryl Walking. She's a she's just a person from Dubai and she emailed me this week and said, you know, I've started this web page. I've had some stroke awareness uh, or I've had a stroke in my family and I really want to do something good for stroke awareness. I said, cool. I'll, I'll like your page and I'll actually announce it on my podcast. She's now really excited. So she's a listener in Dubai and found our webpage and said, I, I would love to at least have you like us and be a part of it. And it looks like she's trying to do some pretty interesting things and, and it's all in the middle East. And I, I really appreciate that. So go to the, go to the Facebook page forward slash stroke dash awareness dash initiative, and you will find her page there and like it. And then 
talk to her, you know, interact with her. Also, ProMed Network. Have you uh, been to the ProMed Network page? ProMedNetwork.com. We have 43 different programs there, including Family Medicine Rocks, Confessions of an EMS Newbie, EMS Educast, EMS Office Hours, Medical Author Chat, EMS Research Cast, and many, many more, including EMS Garage and all the all the great, great EMS radio podcasts are on that page. So go to the ProMedNetwork.com and listen to a bunch of shows. So basically, you could listen to 40 hours of content a week. Pretty doggone cool. And I'm Chris Montera, Geeky Medic, and you can find me on all the websites, Twitter, Facebook, Gems. You know, I'm not, I haven't been on Gems Connect in a while. I should probably go over there and just post something. And you can find me on, you know, the email, emsgarage at gmail.com. Have a great day, night, weekend, and it is Memorial Day weekend, so if you see a service vet or you know one or you see somebody that's actively in the military, tell them thanks, and we really appreciate their service. Have a great day. See you next time when we talk about more issues that concern you in EMS.